Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Impact at Scale podcast. My host today is Alex LaPlaza, who's a partner at Lower Carbon Capital, a VC that is focused on sustainability and climate tech. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Alex, why don't you just tell us just a little bit about yourself first, and then, um, and then, I'm, you know, happy to ask a few questions about lower carbon capital as well. Sure, happy to. Yeah. So, I, as you mentioned, I'm a partner with Lower Carbon. We're early stage venture capital fund dedicated to solutions and technologies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce and remove greenhouse gas emissions, as well as buy us more time to adapt and, and grow more resilient to the impacts of climate change. Typically, we'll we'll get involved super early and, and invest in all all manner of funky things, everything from clean cement and lab grown meat, electric airplanes, and nuclear fusion. Anything that we can we think will take big make big dents in in the carbon emissions problem, and we invest globally. So have a have a portfolio that spans a few continents and a few dozen countries at this point. So, Alex, you started your career in, in public policy and research. You know, how did you end up in the crazy world of venture capital? Yeah, quite a round, roundabout way, frankly. I have always been a climate guy, a climate person, and I've kind of stumbled my way into venture capital. For the years prior, I had been working on climate and clean energy policy, particularly in emerging markets, largely because I felt that Climate was the one issue that made all other ish, global issues worse, right? It's a threat multiplier, a risk accelerant. But I had also recognized that if you could meaningfully address climate change, then you could also meaningfully address these other challenges that it touches. So since university, I've been thinking and, and focused on climate change, spent a lot of time thinking about food and water security, particularly in Indonesia. And then I went to grad school at Stanford University to start thinking about ways to scale climate solutions using policy, because I felt policy was the biggest lever for change. You know, if you can, if you can enact policy, then that is the, the way to scale solutions most meaningfully. The challenge is that policy is slow. You know, it often is, is quite slow. And at the time I was in grad school, it was during the Trump administration. And, you know, I had these questions about, okay, if I'm going to dedicate my career to, to policy and enacting policy changes, you know, just wanted to avoid a situation in which I had dedicated years and years to getting one policy passed. And then someone with tiny hands could, you know, sign away that, that life's work with a, a stroke of a pen. So at the same time at Stanford, it's really hard not to get distracted by everything that's being built. There's just so many people ideating and building all around you all the time. And I felt that they, these were people that were making changes, tangible changes with tangible outcomes. And that really appealed to me as someone who, you know, had kind of been in the world where you read and write and you don't know if anyone's going to care about what you read and write. And it's unclear whether or not the work you're doing is going to lead to any changes potentially for years to come. So started getting quite involved in the, the budding climate tech ecosystem at Stanford at the time and started working with with startups and taking courses with a number of, of actually climate tech VCs. And that actually just got me looking into the space and thinking about venture capital as, as a mechanism for change. You know, it's, it's clearly a, a tool to scale solutions or to scale technologies. It's with a, quite, a, quite a remarkable track record. And so I thought, how could that be used for the benefit of climate? 
And then oddly enough, I heard about a, about lower carbon on a podcast, the My Climate Journey podcast, where my colleague Clay went and pulled the curtain back for the first time on the work that lower carbon was doing. And I dropped everything and, and applied and was fortunate to come in in, in early 2020, just as, as lower carbon was kind of taking off. Oh, wow. I'm, yeah, very familiar with My Climate Journey. In fact, a lot of my inspiration is drawn from that podcast and their subsequent Slack channel, which is incredible. It's funny you should mention the the policy versus real life business clashing because the number of people that I've had on the show that talk about, you know, you need to be in policy to make big changes and then realizing that actually if I go, you know, the consumer route, I can have a bigger impact. Or if I go the business route, I can have a bigger impact. Don't you think that we need people like you who care in positions to be able to change the policy? Or do you think that it's better that we create opportunities on the ground for businesses and consumers to improve, and then that would lead to changes taking place in the ballot box? So yeah, we need both. We obviously need folks on the policy side, and we need folks on the business and, and consumer side. And I think they're, they need to be working and pushing in the same direction. And fortunately, I think in this space, there's a virtuous cycle that's that's possible and that has seen we've seen it before and we've seen it work really well and in fact i think a lot of the progress we have made on climate in terms of the falling costs of renewables and the scale up of technology is is a result of of this virtuous cycle this this mutually reinforcing positive feedback loop specifically what i mean by that is i think policy can lower the costs of technology and technology can lower the costs of policy and so take Take clean energy, for example. We had we had some pretty advanced policies coming out of Europe in the in the two thousands and two thousand tens and the US as well, aimed at lowering the costs of clean energy and clean energy deployment and scaling up manufacturing. And so in doing so, it set off this learning by doing a dynamic whereby every every year we built more, deployed more, learned how to how to build it better and learned how to build it cheaper. And so as the costs started to fall, thanks to these, these policy mechanisms, um, the, the costs of, as the cost of renewables started to fall, the cost of bolder and more ambitious policies started to fall as well. You know, it's much easier to set an ambitious climate target or renewable energy target as a country, say 30, 50, 80% renewables by certain dates, when you know that the re- costs of renewables are cheaper. And so it just becomes this this cycle where the cost of technologies can fall and then that pay opens the door to lower cost policies and and then it just keeps working and over and over again and so it's a long-winded answer to your question to say yes we need both me personally as i said earlier i viewed the policy as the the most important lever for change and i still do but for my day-to-day work i really liked the idea of of making decisions that I saw tangible outcomes on a near daily basis. I felt that kept me more motivated and that felt easier to do on the business side. Um, But eventually, you know, I I think I I would like to go back and and work on the policy space. And I still do, you know, it's, it's impossible not to when you work in this space, but yeah, that's the, the, the short answer is, is both. It's an interesting place to be in, right? Because as you said, it's easy to make these sort of ambitious targets for the future when you know that the price is coming down. It's also easy to make these ambitious targets for the future if you know that 
maybe as a politician, you're not going to be in power at that time. And so you're not going to be held responsible for whether they're met or not, which is kind of the situation that I think a lot of these governments and even corporates are making where they say, oh, we want to be, you know, net zero by 2050. Well, you know, you're going to be long gone by then. So it's easy for you to say. But I think the whole world moving in that one trajectory, as I feel we're doing now and where people are at least committing to making changes is a significant improvement from where we were even like five or 10 years ago in terms of the climate space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's true that it's Talk is cheap, right? It's easy to to set the standards and then hope that the those that come after you will will meet them. But I think it's really important that those those standards are set that that we have a direction to look towards, particularly in the business environment. You know, investors, technologists, company builders, financiers, the whole world they they want certainty. You know, if you're going to meaningfully move entire sectors of the economy in certain directions that it hasn't gone before, then, then we want that certainty that, that we want that certainty of direction of, of this is the way things are going. And there will be, this will be an economic decision, a positive economic decision, not just the cost. And so um, targets are good, I think, but yeah, talk is cheap. So can you tell us a little bit more about a lower carbon capitals investment thesis? Yeah, so we're early stage investors. By that, I mean pre-seed, seed, we'll do some series A. And we outline our thesis in three buckets. The first being carbon reduction, and it's the overwhelming majority of our investing. And so that could be carbon abatement or greenhouse gas abatement of of any kind, really, as long as we think it will take meaningful chunks out of out of slices of the emissions pie, we, we're happy to do it. So it's cross-sectoral industry, agriculture, transportation, et cetera. The second bucket is carbon removal, so any kinds of negative emissions technology, and that could be anything from engineered natural solutions like you know biomass, carbon removal and storage, all the way to more engineered solutions like direct air capture and you know enhanced weathering and the like. The third bucket we call buying more time, and that's what you can think of as climate adaptation resilience solutions and technologies that can really enhance the the resilience to particularly the most vulnerable communities around the world to the uh, the here the present and accelerating impacts of climate change we invest globally and there's really no sector we wouldn't wouldn't touch as long as we can get convinced that it will meaningfully move society globally in in the direction we want which is you know decarbonization and climate resilience Something that I find quite fascinating about your fund in particular is that while you're also funding early stage companies, you're funding research. So can you tell me a little bit about that approach and how you decide what research to back? Yeah, so to be clear, as a fund, as lower carbon, we don't use LP dollars on funding research and or funding nonprofits. The Lower Carbon was built out of a essentially a family office of Chris and Crystal Saka. We started doing some climate philanthropy and then some climate investing and and thought, you know, we we felt it was going pretty well and so raised external capital, took took on LPs and and are just kind of putting our foot on the gas. And but we still look for opportunities to support impactful and meaningful organizations, nonprofit organizations and research, particularly one field that we look at quite a bit is the field of solar geoengineering. So for, for those that don't know, solar ge- geoengineering is this 
pretty wild idea of modifying the reflectivity of Earth. And there could be a number of ways to do that with the purpose of deliberately altering the, the Earth's climate at a planetary scale, essentially trying to reverse the heating effect of climate change. There's a number of ways to do it, all of them quite controversial, all pretty poorly understood. And so a lot of the research we fund is just getting a better understanding, research and development into um, what this might look like and what the effects might be. Just understanding, okay, if this is a possible tool we have in our toolkit, should should things get really bad, maybe a, a break glass in case of emergency situation, is this a tool that we want to have in our toolbox so just doing the research around that, you know, we, we don't say this, this is something we should deploy. Certainly, we don't think we should deploy it as is, but we need to understand what, what the potential of this technology is, particularly because we think someone else is going to do it or, or might be inclined to do so. So bring this one up in particular, because I think it speaks to a kind of our philosophy around, around funding research and nonprofit organizations. Um, we are looking for organizations that will have or that are shaping entire ecosystems or entire new fields of inquiry, new fields of, of innovation, like solar geoengineering, like carbon removal. Uh, and part of it is because we view it as entirely synergistic to our broader portfolio, maybe not in the case of solar ge geoengineering, but we've supported groups like Carbon 180 and Carbon Plan because they are bringing rigor and regulatory evolution to the field of carbon removal, which benefits our, our portfolio. And we just think it's important for the world that, that these things develop, mature, develop and mature and be, grow more sophisticated. So I'm familiar with the idea of carbon capture, right? And that trying to take a lot of carbon out of the air and do something with it. Can you talk to me a little bit more about this blocking out the sun? It sounds very sci-fi, Matrix, kind of James Bond bad guy. Yeah, it's it's almost exactly that. And it is, I think, one of the most under-discussed topics in climate relative to, to the potential impact. So the background here is that we've noticed or we've known for a long time that when when volcanoes erupt, they often inject sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere, super high up into the sky. And these aerosols, once in the sky, they spread around the atmosphere globally. They block sunlight from, from reaching Earth's surface. So they reflect sunlight back into space and in effect cool the surface of the Earth. We've seen this happen most recently in, with a volcano in the Philippines called Mount Minatubo. I think in 1982. And we've seen that and we say, okay, well, we know there's an effect of sulfate aerosols in the sky. We know it reflects sun sunlight back into earth. And we know there's a significant cooling effect as a result. I think with Mount Pinatubo, it was around one to one and a half degrees Celsius. So, you know, for context, that's about what, about the warming that we've done to date with anthropogenic climate change. That's all the, all the average global warming that humans have baked into the, the system so far has been around that. You know, that was just the eruption of one volcano, albeit a very large volcano, but that offset all that could offset all the cooling, all the heating to date. And so we recognize this is an extremely powerful technology. This is something that doesn't address the root causes of climate change. Certainly, you know, there's there's no way, no world in which you can use solar geoengineering and think you solved climate change as long as you are still emitting greenhouse gases. 
But the point is, it's extremely powerful. And it's a tool that we should understand should should things get really dire. It is it is there's almost an ethical obligation to say, okay, we know the mass suffering and loss and damage that could result from even incremental minor changes to the climate system. So if we could, if we could counteract that even temporarily for decades, essentially buying us more time to decarbonize the entire economy, because, you know, we all know we're, we're far off track, then maybe this is something that we need to understand better. It's, I think, relative to Okay, so so I think this is a a an illustrative example of the power of this is that so if you wanted to reverse climate change by sucking up all the carbon in the atmosphere and storing it underground, obviously something that's that's relatively impossible, but if you wanted to do so, the volume of of carbon, the volume of of matter that you would have to move to to meaningfully offset climate change is just incomprehensible. It's, it's almost impossible. It would be probably the greatest human endeavor ever undertaken. Yet, if you wanted to get the same cooling effect that of, of removing all the carbon from the sky with just spraying some aerosols into the stratosphere, it is many, many orders of magnitude smaller in terms of the, the operations, the logistics, the, the mass move, yeah, everything that would take technologically. And so I say this to, to say this is an extremely, extremely powerful technology that we don't understand well. And there's a chance that things get really dire and someone decides, okay, we need to do this. We need to deploy this. This, this, is, the, this is the break glass in case of emergency situation. And if we do so without understanding it properly, then things get really bad. We, we don't know the effects on, on you know, global systems. Things, it's going to affect parts of the world differently. There's going to be winners and losers, you know, even when you have are in a room and are setting the thermostat that often upsets people. Think about that on the global scale. This is this is essentially the, the potential for groups, states, nations or even just small groups taking it upon themselves to determine the, the temperature of the entire globe. That can get really scary really quickly. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on governance, a lot of work that needs to be done on the, on the technologies front. Wait, I just I just I want to be clear here. Are you saying that one volcano that erupted in one part of the world in the Philippines in the 1980s was responsible for lowering the global temperature by one and a half degrees? Yep, that's exactly it. So Mount Pinatubo in 1981, I believe, ejected enough, stratos- enough sulfates into the stratosphere that it cooled the surface of the earth by... Uh, I think it's one, one, one and a half. Don't, don't quote me on that, but it could be a little bit less. But... Essentially, you know, somewhere somewhere in the realm of a significant portion of the the heating to date. That was just one one volcanic eruption. It's happened before, actually, in the in the eighteen eighties. If you've ever heard of the the year without the year without summer, it was because of a large volcanic eruption. I think that one was called Mount Chichon. I believe it's in Central America. So there's a lot of actual funny stories that that come out of it. Well, not funny exactly, but for example. The, the book, Dr. Frankenstein, was written because it was just a gloomy, this gloomy summer and the author was inside all summer in this kind of morose year. And that's how Frankenstein was born. That's really, that's actually really interesting. And I've never heard that before, that just this one, one singular event that's taking place on the planet had such 
impact in terms of offsetting almost all the temperature change that we have implemented as humans. So that's really fascinating to learn. Um, I, I was looking at some of the companies that you invest in, and I, you know, I love these, the zero carbon cement, electric planes, clean lithium mining. These are all really huge bets. These are not, you're not betting on the latest SaaS reporting system or something like that. These are really large play bets. How do you manage the risk in these companies or the risk that you're making when you put your money with them? So lower carbon was built to fund risky technologies. I think largely our philosophy is that the risks of inaction far outweigh any risks that we can take in terms of investing in, in these technologies and solutions. So that's the overall kind of philosophy. I, but on a more practical level, uh, the our team has a number of experts in uh, a number of different realms and a number of different technologies, things like chemical engineering, chemistry, material science, synthetic biology. And so we have a pretty thorough technical vetting process that we do for every investment. But there's always going to be risk, right? These are inherently very, very risky technologies. But I think it's far less risky than a lot of folks realize, partly because a lot of the goods and services and technologies that, that we're investing in are well understood, right? They're markets. The, it's not like in, you know, in the past with venture capital, you invest in an app and then hope that there's demand, hope that there's product market fit. Many of the technologies and companies that we invest in are just producing substitute goods that are just better, cheaper, faster, stronger. So that's kind of a core philosophy of ours is that the way to have impact is is not to guilt and shame people, but rather offer them solutions that are just in their self-interest, right? Clean energy, people love clean energy, often not because they care about climate change, but just because it's the cheapest form of energy, right? The electric vehicles, people, people love Teslas, not because they want to solve climate change. I mean, sometimes they do, but it's because it's just a better customer experience. Electric vehicles are just more enjoyable, better experience that that save you money. And so we look for those solutions that we know there's demand. Should you be able to produce it, produce the the substitute good, better, cheaper, faster, stronger, whatever it may be. And so from that perspective, I think it's far less risky than many people anticipate. Certainly there's not demand risk for a lot of the technology and solutions that we invest in. Things like cement, you know, cement's growing rapidly, particularly in emerging markets. And so if you can just produce cement cheaper and cleaner, then that's how you win. And that's how you scale impact and, and solutions. At least that's our philosophy. I absolutely love that idea because I, you know, I talk to a lot of climate companies and sustainability companies, and I tell them that just being good for the planet is really not good enough. You have to be producing a competitive product than what's already out there in the market. And you have to either be a better product, you have to be cheaper. And then there's this like nice residual bonus of you being able to do better for the planet, but the fundamental core product has to be good. Otherwise people aren't going to buy it. Yeah. I think that's how, that's how we're going to get to to scale with some of these solutions and, and technologies. It's, it just needs to be in the self-interest of of those, you have to make it easy for them. You have to make it in, in their interest to, to buy what you're selling. Really, we, we don't even care if customers believe in climate change or not, but if they're buying a clean solution, then, then that's the, that's the goal we're striving for. So, you know, Alex, 
you've had a really interesting life. I read that you you've lived in India, Indonesia, Kenya, Brazil, and I know there are a few that I've I've missed out as well. How did this shape your view on climate and its impact on the planet? Yeah, I've been very privileged, frankly, to experience these cultures and spend time in these countries and and learn about these places and and the ways of of living there. And it's pretty fundamental to my views on climate, to my views now and my current job and the way I invest in that I got into climate by seeing the effects on these places, the effects climate change will have and is already having on these on these places. It started in a summer I was working in Uganda, just working at a school, doing some development work and seeing how intimately development and quality of life was linked to things like food and water security. And then just looking down the road and thinking about the impacts climate would have on on things like that and on communities and whole populations that have had little to no responsibility for causing the problem that they're they're suffering. So that was the real motivation originally to getting into climate change is, is recognizing that that these are places, just the injustice of of the suffering that will be wrought on places that have little responsibility on, on causing the problem. But as I started working more and more in these places, I started also seeing the opportunity. You know, to my point earlier, I think these are places where decarbonization is in their self-interest. I think, you know, I don't, I don't view these countries as having any obligation to the rest of the world to decarbonize. I think they have every right and are entitled to develop in the same way that other countries have developed, and that's with fossil fuels. Um, but I think often it, the decarbonized way suits their self-interest more. And I'll give you some examples. Let's take India, for example. India is developing very, very rapidly, massive population. They're gaining, they're growing economically, they're growing per capita, wealth is going up. And so fossil fuel demand is going up, energy demand is going up. But in this case, clean energy just makes the most sense. It's the cheapest form of energy in India. It's solar and wind power is just now cheaper than than most other forms of energy. And so it's just in their self-interest. And there's the added benefit that it's not cho- doesn't choke their cities with pollution. It doesn't kill people with air pollution. It doesn't reduce their reduces their dependence on foreign inputs of fuel. It increases their energy security. You know, clean energy is just even if climate change wasn't didn't exist, it would be in their self interest to 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 develop with clean energy. And so, I see that dynamic now play out in many places around the world. In Brazil, in Indonesia, some of these largest markets where I think the opportunity is in many ways far greater than in developed countries, where there's an opportunity to lift people out of poverty with clean energy, to enhance food security with a number of different climate solutions, like like low carbon fertilizer, that's also just cheaper fertilizer. To your question earlier about how this affects my my perspective on, on climate, how my experiences in these countries impacts my perspective on climate, is it motivates me to do the work I'm doing, but it also has has allowed me to see the opportunity in doing so for the for the good of these countries. And so in my work today, I am often pushing us to invest in emerging markets. I, fortunately, Lower Carbon has been quite open to the idea and we've made investments in India and in Kenya and Brazil uh, out of recognition that these are really big opportunities for wealth creation, for, for to improve quality of life, to, to lift people out of poverty while also building, you know, successful and valuable companies. So speaking of uh, investing in companies, I know that a lot of my listeners will be very curious to know what is it that a budding entrepreneur could do to get the attention of a climate VC? 
Ambition, I think, is the short answer, really. Uh, within lower carbon, I think more generally with venture capitalists, you look for unreasonable ambition. Venture capital is a game of scale, right? It's about tail tail end events, uh, outcomes that are disproportionate in driving returns. So for those who are less familiar with venture capital, the model is such that that failure is built in quite a bit. You expect around half of your portfolio to fail in hopes that a handful, a few, sometimes even just one company will more than make up for the rest of the failures. So that's just true of venture capital generally. But with climate, I think it's doubly true because we just need really big swings at, at a lot of these problems. There's just so many so many ways to decarbonize. There's so many places, sectors, technologies that need decarbonizing, and all of them are going to be really tricky. And so you need, you can't have any shortage of ambition in doing so. You need to be going after the largest, trickiest, thorniest problems, because often that's where most of the value will accrue. And so to, to get the attention of a, of a VC is you really just need to be ambitious. You can't be nibbling around the edges. You need to really go at the core of problems some of the biggest challenges and just uh, be full, full throated about, about the, the opportunity and the, and the challenges of them. So, I mean, that's, that's a great point. I'm, I'm curious, does, does lower carbon capital have the same model as other VCs? So you're looking for outsized returns on a small percentage of your portfolio versus like decent returns across the whole portfolio. Uh, yeah. I mean, we are hoping for outsized return in every investment we make, uh, but the, yeah, we, we are looking for large companies. To be clear, we're not an impact investor. We think that the path to impact is by building large, valuable companies that can deploy their solutions. And so we look for companies that can, that we think can get there. It's not just, you know, base hits. It's, it's, it's not nibbling around the edges of certain problems or, or tackling, you know, the, the challenge in niche markets and in certain sectors. It's about, global solutions, technologies that can scale globally and, and as a result can scale impact globally. Uh, so, so yeah, we're looking for, for disproportionate outcomes in every investment we make. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Al. This is fun. It's a pleasure to be here.